Father, we do thank you for your word, your church, this body. And we thank you, God, for how you've, you've led us all here, um, that we've been here this year, Father. And uh, we can give testimony of, of your grace in our lives. Um, we even think about those that have, that have come, been among us, and have been sent out. Um, and Lord, just thank you for the ways that you've grown us, the way you've taught us, uh, the way you've shaped us. And then, Lord, it gets us eager and excited to see uh, where we're headed and where we're going. So I just pray that you would bless even this time as I walk through these values. Help me, God, to be clear and uh, help us together uh, to really sink our teeth into this identity you've given us as Christ Church with these values, God, to, to, to form or to, to, to be guardrails for us as we pursue the mission that you've entrusted to us. So, Lord, we love you. We pray all this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. So, our, the, the name of our church, Christ Church Charleston, nothing fancy about it. It comes from our desire to literally be Christ, apostrophe S, church in Charleston. That's who we desire to be. That's how we want to live. That's how we want to function. We want to be Christ Church in Charleston, all right? And then, in aim with God's revealed purposes in His Word, our mission as a, as a church body is to make disciples of Christ to glorify God in all of life, and then boldly live out their faith. That's our mission. That's what we exist for, to make disciples of Christ who glorify God in all aspects of their lives, and then boldly live out their faith. And then we've got seven values as a, as a church that, we've, that form as kind of the bedrock, the foundation of who we are, what we do, what we pursue, all, all of those pieces. These are the, the guardrails that give us direction, that give us force moving forward. So there's, there's seven of them. So we've gone through four. Does anybody remember what the first one was? Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, Trent. What about the second one? You can look back at your notes, Elizabeth. I were devoted worshipers. The third one? We are submitted to the Word and the Spirit. And then this, one, this one's got new wording over the past year, so I'll give it to you. We are a local household of God, all right? We're a local household of God. And then today we'll go through the last three, all right? So the fifth one is we are equipped and empowered disciple makers. We're equipped and empowered disciple makers. So we describe the value as follows. By God's grace, we're all disciple makers of Christ, equipped with the Holy Spirit, equipped with Holy Spirit-empowered gifts to be stewarded for the building up of the body of Christ and the expansion of Christ's kingdom in the world. We're committed to individually and corporately stewarding our gifts towards our shared mission of making disciples of Christ who glorify God in all of life and boldly live out their faith. So there's all kind of texts that you could use to kind of form the foundation of this. Like, where does this value come from? Where did it come? Well, there's a lot of texts. They're all over the scripture that give the, the foundation for it. But there's two specifically that are just really clear. 1 Peter 2.9, which says, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Ephesians 4, 7. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So one of the, one of the most significant and I think one of the most important aspects of the new covenant uh, that we've been grafted into through Christ is the priesthood of all believers. So in the Old Covenant, 
Israel was called a nation, was called as a nation to be salt and light in the world and to display God's glory and character through obedience to God's law. And in doing so, they would show themselves set apart from the nations and would be a national display of the blessing that comes from worshiping the true God. So on Mount Sinai, the Lord was giving, through Moses, the Lord was giving His law. He was giving the, 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 the pattern in which they were supposed to live and display His glory. And He, he says this in Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all nations. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's where first that's first Peter two nine, what we just was what we just quoted. It's what Peter's doing, saying, Look, in the new covenant, this promise that God gave to the nation of Israel is fulfilled. Okay, so as the nations were drawn to God, they then were to adopt Israel's moral and cultural laws, ceremonies, and institutions. That's what they were to do. God gave Israel the law. Obedience to it would display His glory among the nations. They would be drawn into Him. And then as the nations would seek to receive that blessing, they were then to adopt the law, the ceremonies, the institutions of Israel as a people. Um, and, and then God's kingdom would grow as they did that. So, you know, theologians said that God's mission in the Old Testament was centripetal. Okay, I think I said it, centripetal. Yeah. Moving in towards the center, right? Like you're out, you're out far from God. And then as you get closer to God, you're adopting the customs of Israel. As you get closer and closer and closer, you get more and more Jewish, you're getting closer and closer to the heart of God. That's what mission looked like in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and as Israel lived out those laws and ceremonies, they were, being, they were to be a kingdom of priests. That's what they were called to be, a holy nation, a chosen people. However, we know the story. No one can naturally obey God's law. No one can naturally do those things, right? There's a problem in our hearts. We are sinful from birth, right? We, we can't adhere to the law perfectly. We can't be the chosen people that, that we were called to be. We needed a Savior. And that's what, exactly what God promised to provide them in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, the Lord declares, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You hear it? Holy nation, chosen people, Right? So in the new covenant, God was going to redeem his people, put his law within them, and then enable them to live out their destiny and calling as his kingdom of priests. And then hundreds of years later, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new covenant was inaugurated. So now he's redeeming his people, the true Israel, by calling them to himself through the Holy Spirit and making them new through regeneration and enlisting them into this glorious work of extending his kingdom to the nation. So now... The mission of God is not like, it's not centripetal. It's not drawing you in towards the center. No, we're made new and then we're sent out. So that's the theological background behind this, this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That's where it comes from. It comes from Mount Sinai, God's design for his people. Then it comes through Christ, making that design actually happen. He inaugurates a new covenant. And then we as his people are his kingdom of priests called to go out and take the kingdom all over the world. That's where, that's where it comes from. So we are a kingdom of priests. And another way to say that is we are equipped and empowered 
disciple makers. So, I mean, what does it mean that you and I are priests in God's kingdom? I won't put you on the spot, Ben, even though you walked in. But glad you are here. Yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for making it. We're talking through uh, the value we are equipped and empowered disciple makers. Fifth one. Okay. Yeah. But kingdom of priest, we're, we're a kingdom of priests. The priesthood of all believers is something all of us have realized. But the question is, what does that actually mean? Like, are we supposed to, you know, put on robes and white collars and speak in old English and, you know, place blessings? Yeah, yeah, speaking Latin, you got to hit people with the, bless, the blessing hammer, you know. Like, no, that's, that's not what that means. But it is important to think about it. Like, okay, this is intentional language in the scripture that we are a kingdom of priests. So then let's just ask the question, like, well, what does a priest do? You know, what, what, what is a priest? Not, don't think of a Catholic priest in a box, you know, you know, that you're confessing your sins to, not that kind of priest. Just generally, what does a priest do? What, 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 what does a priest do? What do you think? Or what do you know? Okay, yeah, a representative of God. That's great. Yep. So there's there that. So there's ambassador. That's a the work of an ambassador, which is certainly a part of that. Yeah. What else? What else does a priest do? I have a definition, but I just want you to think about it. Yeah, there's a mediatorial role, right? So, so here's, the, here's the definition, okay? Um, a priest is a minister of God authorized to perform and carry out the sacred rituals of a religion, especially as a mediatory agent between God and mankind, which is what you were getting at, Matthias. So, so Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man, right? He is the high priest. The book of Hebrews is all about that. This is who Christ is. He's higher than the angels. He's higher than Moses. He's higher than all the priests. They were all pointing to him. He is the high priest, right? And yet, we are a kingdom of priests. We're like under priest, under the high priest, working under his authority, working under his command. So we, we then go out into our everyday lives, where we live, where we work, where we play, all the things that we do, and we are called to be salt and light in those places. We're to declare the gospel, we're to do it with our words, we're to do it with our actions, like Carly, what you were talking about with Sarah, you're just being a friend with her, you're sharing with her the love of Christ, you're being salt and light, that's why she asked you to lunch, I'm, I'm assuming. I mean, you are also really cool, like you were saying, but, but it's also because you're being salt and light, you're being... You're living out that identity as a priest in the kingdom. That, that's, what, that's what that is. So as we do that work, we're these little mediators then drawing people in to the mediator, the high priest. So we're a kingdom of priests. That's the work that we're to be doing. We're equipped and empowered disciple makers. Okay, That's who we are. So, And this is also this work of being a priest in the kingdom is also where our spiritual giftings come from, right? That's Ephesians 4, 7, and gifts were gi- grace was given to each one of us. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4, 7. This grace is a, it's a spiritual gift that each one of us have received. And we've received these spiritual gifts. We've been equipped with them. We're empowered with them by the Spirit so that we can do this work with His power and in, and in His way according to His will. It's like, it's like this, um, it's not a perfect illustration, but it helps, it helps me. Think about football, okay? You've got a team of players. On, they're all, you've got all these different players on a team, 
okay? But they each play different positions. And then these positions that they play, they're given different equipment. So I don't know if you know this or not, but a, a quarterback, well, every, every member of the team has shoulder pads, okay? They all have shoulder pads. They all have helmets. But a quarterback's shoulder pads are very different than a linebacker's shoulder pads. Everybody know what a quarterback is? Okay, everybody knows what a linebacker is? Everybody, everybody good there? Just want to make sure, you know, it's, you know. So a quarterback's shoulder pads are a lot lighter. They're a lot thinner. It allows for a lot greater range of motion because they got to throw the ball. They need to be able to move around. They're not, they're not laying out big hits a lot, okay, and they're hopefully not getting hit a ton. So their equipment's a little different. Now a linebacker's shoulder pads are much thicker. They're much denser. They, they don't provide as much mobility. Sometimes they even have straps that keep their arms from going up vertically just so that they can. And the purpose is because their role, their assignment is to lay the wood. They're supposed to drop the hammer. That's their job. Make lots and lots of tackles, blow people up, you know. Again, though, the quarterback and don't you know what I'm saying? The quarterback and the linebacker, though, even though their their roles are a little bit different, their equipment's a little bit different, they're aligned on the same purpose, the same goal, the same target they have. They want to win. That's what they're after. Okay? In the same way. Again, not a perfect illustration, but we are a kingdom of priests. We have the same goal, the same objective. We want to see Christ's glory cover the earth, uh, like, or we want to see the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We want to see the whole thing covered. That's his mission. That's his vision. And yet, grace is given to each one of us, specifically, uniquely. We have these spiritual gifts that God has equipped us with and empowered us with so that we can use them to be salt and light in specific ways. We're all called to be in on the game, okay? It's not just a couple people with particular gifts. No, we're all called to utilize and steward these gift things that God has given us. So again, back to that value, the fifth value, we are all equipped and empowered disciple makers. This is who we want to be as a church. We don't want to be a church that just has a couple gift things that are at play. A couple of the believers are activated if you're really leaning in. No, no, no. If you're a member of Christ's church, you, you are valuing, you're saying this as a family, I'm equipped and I'm empowered as a disciple maker, therefore I'm to get to work. I'm supposed to get to work towards this mission. All right, y'all with me there? All right, so there's so much more that we can say and I would love to say, but time we'll go to number six okay so number six the sixth value we live purposefully and give generously we live purposefully and give generously so we describe this value as follows all of life is a gift from God and is therefore to be lived purposefully for his glory and kingdom therefore we seek to conform all aspects of our lives to the kingdom of which we are citizens by Christ and generously steward our time, talents, and treasures for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. So again, this value, like the rest of them, you could go all over the scripture to find, you know, how, how is this backed? Where does it come from? But there's, there's uh, three texts in specific I'll point you to. One is Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. God gives a, a command to, gives a command to Israel through Jeremiah um, while they're in exile in Babylon. Okay, they're, they're in Babylon, a pagan nation, and he gives them instructions for living their day-to-day -day lives in the midst of it. This is what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. 
multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Again, what are the specific instructions? Essentially, live with purpose. Establish a home. Plant a garden that you can eat from. Be, be a godly household that I've called you to be in the midst of this pagan land. My means of, of, of winning this country, my means of, being, of showing my light, my glory to them, is normal everyday life. Do this unto me. Live with purpose. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, 11-12, the Apostle Paul, he's given, um, he's given an, an encouragement to this new church in Thessalonica. And there, this, these specific verses, 11 and 12, um, it, it's two verses in a larger section where Paul's exhorting them to live a life that's pleasing to God. So there's a lot of little pieces, but this is kind of the summary of it. He tells them to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, live, live with purpose. Think with how you're li- you think about how you're living. Live, live, in, live normally, <laughs> but do so with purpose, with, a, with, a, with an intention behind it. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8 is a, is a text that really gets at the kingdom principle of generosity, which again, you see this all over the scriptures, but here Paul summarizes it. He says, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So again, specifically in that context of that passage, Paul's talking about giving to help relieve the, the saints in Jerusalem, there was famine going on, so he's calling them to, to relieve them, um, to give, so financially give. But the principle is bigger than just financially giving. It's, it's a gen- God calls us to be generous with our entire lives, time, talents, treasures, all of us. And as we're generous with all of our lives for his kingdom purposes, towards his kingdom vision, he blesses that. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. That's the principle. So, real quick, I want to, I want to say I want to talk through this because um, I think it's just important. And again, why this value? We live purposely, give generously. Why that? I think it. Not I think. I know one of the greatest threats to the church, God's people throughout history, is syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of worldviews. The blending of religions, the blending of cultures into a new, a new religion, a new culture, some, something new, something different, okay? Syncretism can happen very intentionally. You know, you see this a lot with some of the New Age worldviews. They take a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of this. They blend it together and form this, this new religion, right? It can be done intentionally, but more often than not, syncretism occurs unintentionally. We unintentionally adopt things from the world that we really weren't intending to do, but we've done it. We, we've, we've just done it as we've been living life. It occurs, you know, it, it, it occurs all throughout the scriptures. You see it in the Old Testament. This was Israel. This was their folly again and again and again. They, they were in a pagan land. They were supposed to be salt and light in this pagan land. And instead of being salt and light and displaying God's glory, they started to take on aspects from Babylon, from Assyria, from Egypt. This was their folly again and again and again, syncretism. 
When we were in India, this was one of the greatest threats to new believers and new churches. Right? They came from a Hindu background more often than not. And so they're now new Christians. So their temptation, their greatest temptation was to pull things from Hinduism and put it on Jesus. Put it on, put it on following Christ. And then today, in, in our world, this Western Christian world, we have the same struggles. One of the greatest examples of this is consumer Christianity. Consumer Christianity is, is a prime example. You think about it. Our society, it's run by, it's driven by, and it is completely set up to enable us to be the best consumers of goods as possible. You think about it. You got, um, you got these big store, Target pickup, right? Ladies, you love Target pickup. And I like it too. It's good for gents. You don't have to get the kids out of the car. You know, Target pickup's great. There's different things going on with Target, but as an example, okay. Other stores have pickup too, all right? Just, but you don't even have to get out of your car. You just make your order. It can be one item. It can be 100 items. Then you pull up to the store. People bring it out to you, throw it in your car, and you go. You've got Amazon set up where you've got next day delivery, so the impulse buy can happen in a moment. You know, you see something on a commercial. You have this desire to buy. Bang, it can happen. And, and really, when you boil it down, the center of our, of our culture, the center of even our economy is consumerism. Consumerism is at its heart. Then when you take a look at, now let's take a look from there, go to the predominant evangelical scene of the church, right? If you look at evangelical churches, not every one of them, but the majority of them, the weekly corporate gathering, it's set up to last as little time as possible so that the consumers of the religious goods don't have to give up too much time on their day off. That's how it's set up. The children in the church, they're moved out of the corporate gathering so that the parents can concentrate and make the gathering more comfortable for everyone sitting around and consuming. And even more insidious than all of that is the overwhelming view of God that's taught from the pulpits and Bible studies and the books published. The supreme Lord of the scriptures to whom all of life must be submitted to is not the predominant view of God that's taught. Instead, it's this moralistic, therapeutic God that we've created. That we've taken things from our culture and we've put it on Him. This God gives you peace, He gives you joy, He gives you love, but He demands nothing, nothing from you. You don't have to commit too much. You don't have to sacrifice too much. But look at all these blessings you can receive. The heart of that is consumerism. That's where that's coming from. Syncretism, again, is this great, great threat. But if we're going to be the church that Christ has called us to be, if we're going to be a kingdom of priests, if we're going to be salt and light in this, in this place that God's called us into, we can't just allow this tendency of syncretism to drive us. We have to live purposefully. We have to really think about what am I doing? Where is my time going? What is our, what's our church, what is our, how, how does our church functioning? What are we talking through? How do we do the Lord's Supper? What is our gathering look? It starts, it's here, but then it's, it's all of life, right? Okay, what am I doing with my Friday evenings? What do I do with my Saturdays? What am I doing? With my, we have to live with purpose if we're going to be the church that God's called us to be, if we're going to be the people that God's called us to be, and if we're not going to fall victim to this immense threat that's upon us of syncretism. So again, um, we've got to be purposeful with our time, with our talents, with our treasures, knowing again that for that 2 Corinthians 9 passage, man, that if we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we also will reap bountifully. We don't just give just willy-nilly. No, we have to do so with great purpose. 
We've got to think about, okay, my view of God. What is, what is my view of God? How, what, what, what is, as we gather together as men, as women, as we gather in these family gatherings, we talk about Christ, we, we're encouraging one another. Like, what is the view of God that we're communicating one to another? We've got to be purposeful with that. We've got to be really intentional with that. Even like the, the, the books that we read. We talk about, you know, we were readers. Each of us are reading books. We listen to podcasts. We consume content. As a church body, we must live purposely, with, with purpose. So it's like, man, if, Will, if you hear me about I'm reading something or I'm listening to something that you see and you know is a threat to my view of God, hey, you need to call me out on that. It's like, no, our value is that we live with purpose. So our, is that, is that helping? You can say it. Joel, is that helping you? Is that helping you towards this mission that God's called us to? I really don't think you should be listening to that, you know? Um, that's what it looks like just in the, in the flesh. Where's our time going? How are we spending our talents? Where are our treasures going? We must live with purpose. And then we've got to give generously. We give all of ourselves generously to our God. That's what we're called to do and be. But then also, this mission that God's entrusted to us as a body, to give generously to see its fulfillment, to see it, to see it happen. Y'all with me there? And again... Think about this too. And this, this gets you, this gets me excited. Well, we don't have to think about it. There's an example in the scriptures. So in Acts, think about the church in Acts. They were a force to be reckoned with. Again and again and again, we see that. You persecute them, no problem. They go to the next town. The kingdom of God expands. <laughs> you can't you can't stop them. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna starve them. You're gonna close their businesses down now because they they're worshiping Christ and they're, and they're not they're not worshiping the the pantheon of gods in Rome. No problem. There's not a needy person among them. They're giving with great purpose. They were a people that had this resolute purpose to, to walk with God and to please Him in all of life. They lived purposely. And then they gave generously as well. You see that. These were two of the, two of the, two of the, um, the fuel behind the flame, I guess you could say. As that they, man, they had great purpose behind them. They were an unstoppable force. And the same could be true of, of us. We are equipped and empowered with the same spirit. If we would live with the same type of purpose, the same type of intentionality, I can't help but think that God would breathe the same type of life on his body, on his people. So, it gets me excited, man. It's like, let's go. Come on, Dan. All right, last one. We're one in Christ is the seventh value. We're one in Christ. This is how it's summarized. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are reconciled to God and to one another. United by our common faith, baptism, and devotion to Christ, we are one by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we act as one body, striving together until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is at the heart of, of our Lord's desire for His people. John 17, we've gone to this passage a lot. On the night where he was, before He was to be arrested and crucified, He prayed for us. Very specifically, he said, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And what's the purpose of this unity, this oneness that the church was to have? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Astounding. What, what the Lord's communicating about oneness of the body and even just that prayer. And then in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul picks up and basically it's, it's like in light of our Lord's desire and in light of what he's done and what he's made possible through our faith, through his spirit, he prays, 
or he exhorts the church in Ephesus. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then here's, here's the, the foundation of the unity. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Seven different uh, ones in that passage. <laughs> Seven of them. You get this huge foundation. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, who resurrected our Lord Jesus Christ, we are united together as one body. By the blood of His cross, the dividing wall of hostility that was raised by the law of God has been broken down, and one new man has been established in the place of two. So Jesus Christ is now our representative head before God rather than Adam. He's made peace between God and man, and he thus unites us in faith, baptism, and spirit as his holy body under his governance. And this is, again, where we've we got to fight against the syncretism that is our threat. We're not a, well, we're not a bunch of just individuals here. That's not, that's not who we are. Um, we are literally a body united by his spirit. We're not just a bunch of little individual units who've come in together. No, no, no. We have the same Spirit, the same Lord. We have the same faith. We've taken the same baptism. So we are literally, we're, we're a covenanted body. We're a covenanted unit, unit together. And we saw this, we see this in Acts, right? We see this right before the Spirit even falls. They're praying together with one heart, one mind, and one soul. So we have this unity of mind, of body, and again, if we live with that unity, if we allow it to influence what we do, how we think, how we make decisions, we'll be a, a glorious and potent force for the kingdom of Christ. Um, again, you see it in the book of Acts. You see it not just in the book of Acts, but all through the scriptures. When God's people were united, as he had made them to be through Christ, they were unstoppable. <laughs> you, you couldn't put out the flame. But today, that's not what we experience within the local church. You know, we've made our faith. It's more personal. It's more individualistic. We view ourselves as individual Christians rather than as members of a household of faith. With genuine, but Dan, you were talking about this earlier, where there's this responsibility, right? Like, I bear responsibility for your privilege. And so you bear responsibility for my privilege. It's both ways, right? If our, if our mindset is now we're these individuals and we're in this church together, if that's our mindset, we're not going to experience that type. We're not going to experience that, that unity that's there. And, and because the church doesn't live in that way, the church functions and takes the form of a business rather than a local household of faith oftentimes, right? The church becomes a vendor of religious services, seeking to appease its clients, increase its share in the Christian market, rather than existing for the edification, equipping, and mobilizing of God's people for God's kingdom, which is just sad. And in due pattern, the church conforms to the worldviews, opinions, theological leanings of its clients in order to keep them around rather than standing on the revealed will of God for all of life and calling one another to conform their life to it. And then over time, what happens? The church weakens, its impact becomes less and less, and the body becomes impotent to fulfill its mission in the world. But this prevailing view of the church is not the view of the church of the members of Christ's church. We'll not only confess our oneness in Christ, but we'll be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit we possess. Our common submission to our one Lord and our united pursuit to be 
devoted worshipers of, of Christ in all of life will make us one. So we'll together strive to pattern our thinking and our lives after the pattern of our Lord, dying so that others may live. It looks like truly bearing one another's burdens, truly thinking about how am I gifted? How can my giftings benefit Haley? How can my giftings that God has given benefit Dan and Chloe? That's, that's pra- it's like practically, intentionally thinking that way. It's to, it's to come even to this gathering. Again, by God's grace, I pray that our number would grow. But as, as we grow, we've we got to fight against this thing that we're coming to, to consume something. No, no. You, you come to the corporate gathering with a word, with a hymn, with a psalm that I might, that I might give, that I might experience, that oneness doesn't occur by accident. It's intentionally sought, right? And over this past year, we've, we've seen that again and again and again. There's been hardships that families have gone through, and there's been a genuine bearing of one of those burdens. It's been beautiful. <laughs> it's been amazing what we've experienced. There's been a, there's been a shared mission. That's something that we desire to grow in, and even the realignment that we're doing, that's, we're hoping to grow in that way, but there has been a shared mission. It's like, man, we want to, we want to do church differently. We want to see the church be what it can really be. That's united us together. But again, we've got to intentionally pursue that, intentionally protect our oneness. So on a number of different levels, you pursue it, right? It starts personally. I said this last week, but I'll say it again. It starts with personally pursuing Christ each and every day, walking with him. Like I'm going to devote myself to Christ and to his kingdom. And then it's down in your household. Again, husbands. It's us stepping in and doing what God's called us to do, to lead as he's called us to lead. To think about our giftings and how we ought to use those and then think about our wives, the way that they're gifted and how they can steward that. And then even our children. To think about our children. How can they be a blood? They're a part of this, this covenanted body as well. They too are to give. And then wives in the household as well. It's, it's you intentionally thinking about, okay, how can I get... get how can I get behind this mission that God's entrusted to our household? But then also, how can I look to the right and to the left at the other ladies in this body? And how can I push them along? How can I serve them? How can I intentionally pursue one that's there? And then further out, this, this household of households, us coming together. And, and really, just like your home seeks unity, one with another and the members, then we go to, to, together as a local household of God. And we think through the same thing. Okay, the Smith household. We have these particular giftings. We've got this, this specific mission that God's given us. Okay, well, then here's the Morgans. Here's how he's gifted them. So how can we lock arms together? How can we do that? How can we push them forward? And vice versa. What, Dan, the way you said it was so good. What responsibilities can we bear for your, for your blessing, your privilege? Am I, is that the way, you, that's the way you said it? That's how I understood it. This is good. This is good. It's, it's the opposite of consumerism. It's, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like you're praying for help me to be a better bearer of burdens. Yeah, right. Instead of Lord help them bear my burden. You right, that's I mean? right. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like as you and then and that's what's beautiful. It's like as the church, if the church is the household of God, as the household of God does that, then what happens the level rises throughout. If everybody's thinking and praying that way, well God in his spirit, he he answers our prayers. He desires to show us those things. That's what he's praying. Lord, make them one as we are one so that the world would see the truth that you've sent me and that you love them as you love me. I mean, that's, that's it. You know? It's beautiful. 
Anyway, it could go on and on about that. But those are the seven values of Christ church. That's what we want to be. We want to be a, a body that is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. We want to be these devoted worshipers of Christ. Not just worshiping when we gather together and sing songs, take the Lord's Supper. No, no, we worship. We worship in all of our life. All of life. Everything we do with our bodies is to be given as a living sacrifice to Him. How do we worship Him? We look to the Word and we listen to the Spirit. Therefore, we submit to the Word and the Spirit. And it's not this individualistic thing. No, we are a local household of God. That's what the church is. Because we're a local household of God, we have to think like that. There's roles, there's responsibilities in a household. Households have missions. that They have things, they have a direction where they're headed. Households don't exist just for one another. They exist for the broader community that they're a part of. We're a local household of God. But then again, we are equipped and empowered disciple makers, each one of us. I mean, that's what we, we believe that, and we seek to live that. You know, I am equipped. Like each of us thinking, I'm equipped I'm empowered by the Spirit generally and specifically for this body and for the loss that's around us. And then we live purposefully. We live purposely and we give sacrificially. We give generously, right? We, we think about our lives. We think, okay, how am I thinking? What, am I, what are the inputs? Okay, not just for me, but then this greater body. How, how, am I living with purpose? Am I living with purpose in my finances? Am I living with purpose with my time? The job that I'm giving myself to, is this, is this taking us further towards Christ's vision and mission or not. It's living with purpose in all of life. And then, looking at my time, talents, and treasures as we live with purpose, then giving generously of those things. Knowing that if we as a body would sow, if we sow bountifully, then we too would reap bountifully. Not that we're gaining money or influence or prestige. We We want to reap bountifully for the glory of our King. Isn't that why we live? I mean, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that why we moved here to see a church plant? We want to see his kingdom come? Well, then we ought to sow bountifully. <laughs> and then all of that saying, okay, we together, we're one. We're one in Christ. We have one Lord, one faith, taking one baptism. We have one mission. <laughs> oh, thank you, Crosspoint. One mission. Look at that. But we do. We were united in all of these different ways. We're united together. We're one. Y'all in? I mean, let's, come on, man. Let's go, Will. Talk about football. I'm just going to put the pads on and go, man. Um, but anyway, I just, man, together, let's, let's, let's pursue this. This is who God's called us to be. He's given us a mission. He's given us values. He's given us a road to walk on. Let's pursue this. Let's do this for His glory, for His honor, that the kingdom would come. That more Sarahs, more Wands, more these people that we're praying for and that we're thinking through, we're sharing the gospel with, the more people would come into the kingdom and that the household of God would grow for His glory and multiply. Until again, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers this city, Charleston, as the waters cover the sea. All of Christ, all of life, all of Charleston. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray, and then um, I'm going to move us into to a time of, of covenanting together, all right? Lord, we love you, and uh, we praise you for the one gospel by which we confess Christ as our Lord, by which we are justified before the Father, by which we're united together as brothers and sisters in a household of faith. 
God, I thank you for how you've worked in our midst this past year as a church, Lord. All that we've been doing, the way that, we, the way that we've been living, operating, Lord, this, the, you, you, have, you led, you blessed, and we have been your people. But God, we praise you for how you've led us to, and to, to further uh, outline our identity, to further outline our mission. I pray, God, that as we do this, that it would, it would cause us and give us handles to grab onto to move forward with greater zeal, that we would be a, we'd be a, a household of God that would, that would be a potent force for your glory and your kingdom. God, that we together would push one another and spur one another on to more sacrificially give our bodies all of our life as a sacrificial offering unto you. So God, even as we right now, as we recovenant together as Christ Church Charleston, I pray that you would bless, I pray that you would lead, I pray that you would, you would work by your Holy Spirit for your glory and for your honor. I pray Jesus in your name. Amen.